Balkans. This show is all about the people behind the science of so. biotechnology and medical devices. Through the stories of the people, I hope that Lab Rats to Unicorns is able to describe the transformative process of, you know, how an idea starts in the lab and eventually becomes a life-saving treatment or a product that that helps patients with diseases. Life life life-saving. Well, good morning everyone. We're delighted to welcome uh, Lindsay Androsky who is the founder and president and CEO of Royvent Social Ventures. Good morning, Lindsay. Good morning, John. It's a pleasure to have you on the show and really excited to talk to our listeners about your journey, what you're focused on at Royvent Social Ventures, and a little bit about your background and what were the things that you know got you into the field to begin with. And the purpose of this podcast is really to try to spotlight leaders in the innovation space, particularly in life sciences, that are really advancing transformative new models that are opening up the doorway and pathway to advance important therapeutic treatments for patients that otherwise may not have access to them. So really excited to welcome you to the show and hear a little bit more about your background. Maybe we'll just dive in if that's okay and maybe first talk about present day, Royven Social Ventures. Tell us what it is and what got you into it. Absolutely. So thanks. I'm so happy to be here. Royvian Social Ventures is a social impact investing entity that we spun out of the Royvian Sciences family of companies. Um, and I had joined the, the founding team of Royvian Sciences back in 2016, and I built and led the team that in-licensed or acquired drugs there that we built new biotechs around. So we were what you could think of as an investment fund, except not a fund. It was actual um, you know, common stock outside investors, but a private entity. And we would take the investor money and we would look for drugs that were had been introduced into patients and were stopped at some point during the clinical trial process, not because of reasons of safety. And we would look for things that had opportunity to make an impact in patients' lives. We would obtain the rights to those and then launch a new biotech around them. So we had launched 20 companies total in uh, the first five years, very busy. Um, And we would help incubate those as well as hire the executive teams and, uh, and just help them get through the clinical trial process. We sold five companies to Sumitomo Dainippon um, at the beginning of 2020. And some of the drugs that went with that transaction are now approved um, and are being used to treat patients. So it's been a very fulfilling journey. That's amazing. At the same time as the transaction happened, um, we were shifting our priorities at Royvant Sciences. So instead of focusing solely on buying existing drugs, we were going into discovery, tech-enabled discovery, computational discovery. And it meant that the deal landscape was going to look a little different for us. So it was a great time for me to hand over the reins of my previous role and look for something new to do. And so at Royvant Social Ventures, what I do is take all of the expertise we have across the family of companies um, from launching and incubating so many biotechs. And we focus on investing in early companies that can use that extra non-financial assistance. But the overarching question we ask before we invest in something is, if successful, will this company help expand access or improve outcomes 
for groups that are currently underserved. And that could be because it's a very small disease category. It could be because of the geography where it's taking place. But those are the entities that we're trying to help. And an important distinction is that uh, Royvant Social Ventures itself is a nonprofit entity. So basically what I'm doing is freeing myself of the requirement to maximize shareholder return and allowing us to focus more on the social impact while otherwise doing exactly what we would do in the venture capital space. Now, when you say you invest early, can you describe what you mean by early for the listener? Yes. Ideally, we want to be the first non-grant money in. So we will make a loan or we will take a small equity stake in the company. But really, because some of the best uh, guidance that we can provide is this non-financial help, um, it's uh, you know a company that has already done a Series A, for example, is probably too late for us. Maybe not, but chances are they've already hired in external parties or you know built out their team so that they have a regulatory expert and maybe a market access person or something like that. So we're trying to get in very early, and there's a second reason for that too, which is that there's a lot of drugs and technology out there that has the potential to really help expand access, but it doesn't mean that it's going to do that in practice. So what we're trying to do is really what you can think of as project finance. So the structure of the investment is is traditional, but what we want the money to be used for is to fund a specific project that will show tangible results in Uh, reaching an underserved group. So Sunflower Therapeutics, um, we had the pleasure of talking earlier today at Portal Innovations. We are funding, they, they have scaled down a way that you can manufacture vaccines, proteins, biologics. We are funding the first in country deployment of their system to locally manufacture a small number of of doses in a middle-income country in Africa. That's the kind of thing that we can help. We establish that it works and it can show proof of concept that we hope can really keep the momentum going. It's a fascinating new company, too, just learning more about it and its potential impact. Maybe taking it one step further, when you think about these underserved populations or these rare diseases or smaller markets, can you describe the, the challenges that go with developing solutions for patients um, in these underserved communities? And why is today different? Is, is it the science that's more able to address and, and focus in, in these areas? Is there uh, greater attention and investor capital available to develop applications in these markets? If you could just maybe talk a little bit about like why has it been challenging and then what about today and the platform will open up new opportunities to either go after a rare disease that's been unaddressed before or open up access to you know a different talent pool into the into the companies that uh, you're investing in or solving a problem that um, has gone really underserved for for many many years I think I look for silver linings and obviously COVID-19 has been a terrible experience for everyone in the world. And one of the silver linings that has come out of COVID-19 is that everyone in the world is now aware of the fact that a large portion of the world doesn't have access to even vaccines, um, let alone cutting edge medicines. And so that 
you know, like many of the listeners, yeah, I was sitting at home when COVID started and thinking, what can we do to actually, like, everyone in the biopharma industry is there because they want to help patients. But even those of us in the industry felt helpless. And we're thinking about what is what is something that we can do that's more impactful. And so I'm really taking advantage of a lens of attention being on these iniquities to try to do something transformative that will make a difference. As far as how we can do it, I mean, they've always, there are patient advocacy groups for, for every disease condition, and they do a wonderful job of trying to draw attention to their cause and develop, you know, get medicines in development, even for the small subpopulations that are suffering from things. One tactic that we are taking at Royvant Social Ventures is to invest in cutting edge technologies because we think that can be a great equalizer. And an example I like to give is, you know, some most of the world has access to a smartphone at this point in time. Most of those people do not and probably will never have access to advanced imaging machines or other diagnostic tools or excellence hospital centers near them. And so we see a lot of promise in things like diagnostics that are, you know, the digital health space, I'd say more generally, but we're thinking about, you know, could this be used by a patient that is in a rural, you know, lower middle income country? And can it help them get closer to the standard of care that those of us who are lucky enough to be in the United States or Europe, you know, take for granted for the most part? It sounds like you're investing all over the world too. That's that's amazing. Uh, can you talk a little bit about more from the business model perspective, sourcing those opportunities um, for the listener, the development of the pipeline, if you will, to understand where can Royvan Social Ventures make the biggest impact by looking and investing through those companies? Yeah, I think it's important to note uh, and just be upfront about the fact that it's mostly relationships and networking is how opportunities mm-hmm. get to me. And so, you know, I'm I'm an MIT alum. Um, I'm super involved with MIT to this day. And uh, Sunflower Therapeutics is spun out of an MIT lab. And that's not coincidental because through the network there, they found me. And so building the relationships, even if it's not something, you know, you don't see a transaction happening in the immediate term, having people who are excited about what you're doing, recognize you as a smart, capable entrepreneur when you're uh, pursuing new ideas that can help pay huge dividends down the road. We will probably at some point as we grow and scale have a formal application process as we screen for more companies to help incubate, um, but that's in the works that we don't do it that way yet. No, that's outstanding. Can you describe also just the model that you're pioneering here, which is truly innovative and exciting to watch your application of the social impact investing model in a very novel approach to solve these very important unsolved problems for patients? Can you describe a little bit about if it's not financial return you're aiming for, are there certain other metrics that stand in place of that? How will you judge success from a, um, your model is to, to raise capital from like-minded individuals or institutions that share that same aspiration. Royvent Social Ventures is making investments in companies with the idea and goal to, to make that impact by delivering these therapeutic outcomes or increasing access. Can you describe 
what metrics you'll utilize to judge success as you make these investments? Yes, I think I want to highlight at the beginning the fact that we are a nonprofit again. So from the donor perspective, what I like to say is that, you know, if you donate to Royvant Social Ventures, you support that as a charity, you get a tax deduction just as you would for any other nonprofit you might support. But from our side, what we can commit to you is that we are picking investments that we think will be successful. We are seeking to get a return from those Mm. and that we will then redeploy the money once repaid or equity is um, sold so that a donor has the potential of having a single gift make an impact many times over. In a previous episode, we talked about equity as part of ownership of a company. But we just heard equity is being used in a different context here. What does that mean? Today's interview has a heavy focus on social impact, or the way in which a company operating either as a for-profit or a non-profit creates value for itself, but also for the larger world. In that setting, there are multiple definitions of equity that you might hear that can be teased apart. The typical definition that you hear in for-profit companies is equity defining the ownership structure or shares and how those are distributed across owners. Often you hear the term equity in relationship to startup funding because some funders, such as venture capitalists or angel investors, are investing dollars for a portion of equity ownership. But it's important to recognize that there are many other definitions of equity. One common one that you might hear is equitable distribution. And so that's getting into how an invention or a technology is made available to different communities or people as it goes to market. Impact investors essentially start companies that are defining a specific type of equity that they want to see created. And that can come in terms of environmental impact, distribution and availability of technologies, as well as the value that's created in a traditional startup. Yeah, and um, and so that is that is the fundamental business model. Now, how we are picking the investments is very similar to what we would look at from the Roy Vance Hyacinth's investment side, um, such as you know market you know impact, path to commercialization, the regulatory hurdle. But most importantly, we say. Does this have the potential to be transformative? Platform technologies like Sunflowers are obviously appealing because when a system like that is deployed, it would be possible for a single manufacturing site to shift from manufacturing a vaccine that is needed to manufacturing insulin, to manufacturing a cancer drug, um, and obviously targeting things that are off patent right now, which is important because there's a lot of drugs that theoretically should be available at low prices that aren't because of manufacturing constraints. And so I'd say the view of the analysis of something as a potential investment vehicle is the same, but overlaid on that is, is this going to make a difference to patients that don't have medical uh, options right now? You mentioned the importance of relationships as you source opportunities. And in that vein, you pointed to your role at MIT and, you know, pursuing your degree there. If we go back in time, what brought you there? And as you developed as a student there, Were there features of your experience there that began to trigger your interest in moving down this pathway? Just talk a little bit about, you know, predating Royvent Social Ventures and even Royvent itself. Uh, What were some of the things that you found as a college student that uh, began to inspire you to move in this direction? Sure. So um, 
I am from the upper Midwest, um, Duluth, Minnesota, and no one from where I grew up had ever gone to MIT. Um, and most people went to University of Wisconsin or University of Minnesota. The reason I even applied actually is because a high school teacher took us out to do Model UN at Harvard. And one of my classmates wanted to tour MIT and asked me to come along. And so I toured it and I fell in love. Um, it is very nerdy and I am very nerdy. <laughs> and I thought these are my people. And thankfully I got in and um, my father tried to talk me out of going because he wasn't familiar with MIT. This was before Goodwill Hunting came out, right. just, to, just to date myself here. But I went anyway because uh, it felt like the right place for me. Um, because I had zero exposure to the biopharma industry at all growing up in that part of the Midwest, which is very, you know, blue collar, um, railroad shipping. And I had a romanticized notion of what this would be. So I went in with the grand idea that I would like to help cure diseases and loosely thought that might mean I was going to do an MD or a PhD. MIT has a great undergraduate research opportunities. So I was able to get a job working in a lab, um, conducting research. And I very quickly realized I had exactly the wrong personality for doing something mm -hmm. like that. So I initially turned away from biopharma as a as a career path. And I ended up, um, I mean, I got a biology degree, but I went into consulting, which consulting and investment banking at the time I was there were like the two career paths that everyone did. So I did that for a few years. Came to Chicago. Um, I did a JD and NBA program there. I, I became a, registered as a patent lawyer, which ended up being quite helpful uh, at Royvant later on. But did that mostly because people say, oh, you went to MIT, you definitely should do patent law. And I found myself in my legal career, which is what I did first, kind of resisting that and trying to be a generalist. So I you know, I was a trial lawyer for 10 years and I um, got into cyber and data security. I was one of the first prosecutors in Alexandria, Virginia, doing cyber and national security cases when they launched the cyber unit and really thought that I had taken a total, you know, left turn away from biopharma. And then I went back to a firm, launched a data security and cyber practice there. And I got a call out of the blue from one of my MIT classmates who had also been in biology with me. And he said, hey, we're trying to launch this new biotech fund. We're trying to change the way drug development is done. You know, come and join us. And I said, no, I'm going to, you know, just be responsible and <laughs> stay practicing law. And he's an excellent negotiator, which I subsequently got to benefit from it at the company. Uh, but he said, ah, just come out and hang out with us for a day. No pressure. See what you think. And it was just a handful of people at that point. And I knew him, obviously, and he was very smart, but our founder and CEO I hadn't met. And he's an extremely impressive individual, if you ever have the chance to meet him. And I was really taken with what they were trying to do. And I thought to myself, you don't get a phone call like this very often. You can always practice law. I need to go and do this. So they they asked me to come in and build and lead the transactions team. And I made it very clear that I had never done anything like that before. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but they didn't care. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think that's a that's a fantastic part for people. You know, I get I get asked a lot how I want to change career directions. How did you do it? And again, it was it was relationships and it was people believing in you and thinking that you, you know, have potential in different areas. But the key part is you know, at small startups, you don't have the luxury of having a name brand that can attract um, people who've done things before. And just as a practical matter, there are like 50 jobs that need to be done and five people. And so that is my advice to people. That's the best way 
to transition is to just find a group of people that you that you like and respect and are are willing to spend a lot of time around and learn things together and and develop the skill set that you that you need in the area that you want to go into. So as you describe that experience, it's in the rearview mirror. And so you're you're describing it from the standpoint of getting the benefit of seeing how it all played out. What was it like when you decided to not be responsible in your words and take on that role? And you know, did you did you have any initial regrets or concerns or fears that overtook you in those early days? And just how did you cope with that? Yeah. If, if so. So so it was a total, you know, different experience. And so I would have been terrified, but I had already done this once before. So after I uh you know, clerked on the federal circuit. And then I joined a law firm just doing generalist trial law. And then I got my job as an assistant U.S. attorney doing cybercrime. And I had never done a lick of criminal law in my life. And uh, at least in Alexandria, Virginia, they throw you into court. And so the scariest moment of my career was the first time I had to stand up and do, you know, a rule five hearing is what they call it. But it's literally all you do is say the person is charged with this offense and here's the maximum penalty. But it was terrifying yeah. <laughs> because I was worried to screw it up. Yeah. And uh, and and then living through that, you know, it was probably weeks before I could talk about what I was learning and doing as a federal prosecutor because it was all so brand new. But once you do something like that, once you know you're capable of doing it again, and that is actually, I also encourage people to jump into government jobs when they have a chance at some point in their career, because you get so much authority and autonomy. And then that translates so so well back to the private sector when you um, when you have the opportunity the development to development of back. yourself as a leader. Absolutely. And so um, I did, however, you know, think it's possible it wasn't going to work out at Roy Band. So I had a, a deal with our founder that if I, in short order, decided it wasn't a good fit, I was just going to, you know, go back to my law firm. And if anyone ever asked, we were going to say, I came in as general counsel and I tried it out for a little bit and, um, you know, decided not to do it. But the fact of the matter is I was, I wanted to come into a business role and use my MBA. And so I wasn't, act, though I was practicing law at some points because we didn't have a general counsel. They're wearing um, multiple hats, like yeah, you said. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, just very careful to note on my correspondence when I was giving legal advice <laughs> and when I wasn't. But yeah, no, it was it was super exciting and it was like the US Attorney's office. If anyone if anyone out there is is a lawyer and listening, it's there's a time period when you're preparing for trial that is called the war room when everyone is sitting together and you're just working long hours and bouncing ideas off of each other and everyone knows what everyone else is working on. It's very intense. That's what Roy Van Sciences was like at the beginning. So it because it, it was an open floor plan, uh, much like an incubator. And I felt that energy and was really excited to be a part of it. And it was really fun, actually, to pull on, you know, I had enough knowledge in biology that I could talk about it in negotiations. I was not as deep, you know, I didn't have, uh, you know, the like, you know, my uh, friend from MIT who pulled me in is an MD. And so I didn't have that deep level of knowledge, nor had I dove into the science. I had to learn what a phase one, phase two, phase three trial was. Uh, that's that's how new I was to this industry, but it's learnable. And um, and I just treated it as, a, you know, an educational opportunity along the way. And it was great. I get asked that a lot as well. Not a scientist by training, but always loved being at the nexus of the science and the business. And being a translator in, in many respects, and it sounds like you have those same attributes in, in many ways. And I think to the audience, welcome, come. I mean, because you don't need to be a scientist, be part of moving the ball forward in uh, having a transformative impact on patients' lives just by aptitude and a willingness to learn and 
be humble and and really kind of engage with the scientists and respect the work that they're doing. Those were some of the ingredients I used to muscle my way into the industry, even though I didn't have that that scientific background. But any any further thoughts or words uh, to the audience that um, you can share that might encourage or inspire others that maybe aren't thinking uh, about biotech as a career path because maybe they just are self-selecting out because they feel like, well, that's only for scientists. Yeah, I want to, you know, double down on what you just said, because I feel very strongly about it, having come in only having an undergrad degree, which is really considered an only in, in our industry for the most part, and instead having this legal and business background primarily, because I have... You know, if you get an MD or a PhD, you learn very valuable things about science. You do not learn how to develop medicines. Mm -hmm. This is on the job training for everyone. Mm -hmm. And so I don't want people should not count themselves out because they don't have that on their pedigree. I think it's becoming even an outdated concept as computational and tech-enabled tools become integrated more fundamentally, even in the early stage of designing a drug or identifying where the drug could be most efficacious. And there, that's a different type of um, skill set that a lot of the listeners will probably be more familiar with because they've, you know, they've grown up with um, technology at every aspect of their education. Um, and so there's, it's really a great time to come into the industry and showcase those skills and help move the needle forward as opposed to following what has been a traditional path to leadership in a biotech or um, a pharma company. Well, and being part of Royven, I would imagine in a dynamic growth environment like that, you had the opportunity or option to continue to grow with the company and really kind of always being on the front lines. Can you talk a little bit about how Royven scaled over time and how Royven today, you know, is is a different organization, likely embodying the same values and and culture that was uh, set forward at the beginning with that initial team. But any challenges that uh, popped up along the way that you can share that perhaps you also sharpened your skills? Yeah. So, you know, as with any brand new small organization, I had my day job and then I had, you know, 10 other jobs. Uh, and so I got exposed to lots of other aspects of the company just by, you know, doing other things that needed to be done. So some of those were I actually was head of IP for a long time. Um, I uh, was head of relationships in Asia. So I spent a lot of time in Japan and to a lesser extent, South Korea and China. And um, I ran alliance management, which is basically anytime we did a deal with someone and we had a partnership, I was the point person and would provide the update reports and uh, things like that. Um, and I ran executive recruiting for 14 months as well. So hiring the CEOs and chief medical officers at the new companies that we were setting up. And so for most of my time at Robin, I knew everything that was going on in every aspect. And then as the company grows, that just becomes untenable. So I vividly remember the day when I stopped knowing everyone who worked for Royvant. And then likewise, I vividly remember the day when I stopped knowing all the potential deals that we were looking at. And I, I remember being sad about both of those things things, but it's part of the evolution. And what I ultimately wanted was for the company to grow and be successful. And that's just part of it. But I also think there's, um, 
you know, there are people who are attracted to organizations that are more stable and have the the lanes set up mm-hmm. for the roles. And then there are people who are not. And so one thing I, I realized about myself as time went on is that I really thrive in those ambiguous settings right. um, where it's a little crazy and things change and people need to dive in and help. And that's fine. And that's just something everyone needs to learn about themselves. And it can help you make good decisions as you move forward through your career about, you know, now I think I would have a good sense of like a place is getting too big for me. Yeah. yeah. Um, And so that it's great to have a small team again now at Royvin Social Ventures. Yeah, no, uh, it sounds very familiar. Just (laughs) as those uh, lanes start to get defined and, and rules and processes and systems that are necessary to build the appropriate structure to really scale a company. To your point, many times building a company is, I often describe, like a relay race. And you know, you're going to have, or, or a jazz band, session players that come on for certain segments of that relay race that are going from you know, point A to point B, point B to point C. And you know, the organization continues to grow and evolve, and it becomes more organized, more scalable. But for the people that were there in the beginning, it's a very different organization. And it's really interesting to hear you talk about just even for the audience, just self-awareness of what is it that you bring to the table in the right environment? Are you more of a person that comes on later in the process that loves the delivery and the actual operational aspects of running an organization or being part of an organization that has more predictability? Or are you a person like you that loves and thrives that on that ambiguity? Um, it's just an, very interesting. Over time, I've thought about that for myself too, just where is the best spot for me to add the greatest amount of value? And um, recognizing that there's equal value all along that continuum of that relay race. And that if I'm not the person that's taking it into the next phase, that's not bad. It's, it's actually you know very healthy. Yeah. I think if we switch gears a little bit and just talk a little bit about balance, you know, how do you, you are covering a lot now as you move on to your next endeavor and are starting this very ambitious social impact fund at Riven Social Ventures. How do you, and is there a way for you now you're wearing multiple hats again, likely, and getting into those ambiguous situations and thriving, but are you able to keep your balance? Uh, is balance necessary to be able to be both creative and fully immersed in the entrepreneurial endeavor? And how do you manage it? Yeah, so I think there's a couple ways we can define balance, right? So balance within the organization, I would say first is something I've gone back to is priorities will come up. Um, and we will need to, I will need to spend two weeks focusing on this specific item to get it done, whether it's our investment or whether it's, you know, an event we have coming up um, or something like that. And so the idea of of getting everything off your to-do list on a given day kind of goes out the window. Um, and that's because we have a small team and we need to tackle the most important things first. And so it's kind of all hands on deck on certain things. So that was something I had you know, I had to get used to again. And then outside of, of work, I think, um, we have a very good balance right now at Royvan Social Ventures. I think naturally, because a lot of what we do is screening for opportunities and we actually, maybe I'll come back, um, later and tell you about this. We have a couple of really exciting, big initiatives. We're trying to stand up that are, you know, going to more directly try to tackle, the problem of drugs getting shelved and leaving opportunity on the table and coupling that with the need in our biopharma industry to increase 
diversity, meaning, you know, women and minorities in the executive ranks and on the board of directors. Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to put together something really innovative there. But when you're working on big projects like that, that take time to set up, you have time to think and be creative. And so it's not just busy work, um, which it often was in the deal context, right? You got to get this deal closed and you're work looking at documents and on phone calls for 12 hours um, that day. And so it is, in that sense, the balance is, is better because you have the opportunity to do the work and then think and be creative and brainstorm with your team. And I really like that. And then, of course, another silver lining, I think, of COVID is that people have, you know, really just embraced the idea of balancing work and life a little bit better. Um, and it's become much more acceptable and really demanded by a lot of industries. I think we're seeing workers more broadly demand that now, um, better quality of life, which I'm really excited about. I'm, I'm happy to see that as a, as a byproduct here. And so, um, you know, we have team members that are living in different places. Uh, we I'm not requiring everyone to go to, you know, a specific city. I think that's also becoming an outdated concept when you have jobs that can be done in other places. I'm a huge supporter of that. And in, in a previous life, I may have been uh, accused of being a workaholic at times, uh, <laughs> but I, I think I've, I've, you know, gotten a better at, you know, balancing things myself. And, you know, I have five children so that they help. They, uh, they don't really let me work late at night. Most nights nowadays. They demand so. that you stay balanced. <laughs> yes, exactly. So <laughs> that's great. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. Thanks for sharing that perspective because, that's a dynamic that's difficult to, to juggle, especially as you're getting something off the ground. But I think your perspective is very helpful. And I think, to your point, the world's moving in a direction where it's more supportive and expecting of that balance. And, you know, technology is making it more feasible to be distributing time, you know, outside of one physical setting, for example, uh, re- remote I think, interactions. I think, uh, you know, two years ago, my worst nightmare would have been doing a Zoom call for some reason and having a child run in the background. And now that has happened to everyone. Right. So we're all just like, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And a dog as well. Right. Yeah. Today's episode was brought to you by World Business Chicago. Connect with World Business Chicago, the city's economic development agency, and discover more about the city's vibrant life science ecosystem. From Chicago's global universities and research institutions to its diverse pipeline of skilled talent and vibrant neighborhoods, as well as its cutting-edge lab and office space, Chicago has the fuel for your company's success. There's no better place to build a life science company than in Chicago. Well, um, what do you think, if we just begin to kind of wrap up here, what are some of the things that you're most excited about? You touched on a couple of the initiatives. I mean, you're you're really a an outstanding role model for women in leadership positions moving into the life sciences industry. Talk about some of the work that you are working toward in that regard in a formal way, but also on the heels of uh, opening up the, the doorway, even just by your actions and who you are and what you've been able to accomplish what are some of the things you're excited about and where will you provide more support to bring the next generation of uh, leaders forward that are more diverse than we see right now? Yeah. So we are actively seeking out a, a criteria, if I didn't mention this before, when we are looking at companies to incubate is, is there a diverse founding team and or executive team? Because uh, we want to encourage that all we can. And you know, the fact of the matter is that the the relationships that are so important 
tend to be in networks of who we see in the executive team right now, um, primarily white men. And so any extra help we can give to other founders or executives is, I think, a time and effort well spent. Um, And we're looking forward to see that cultivating. I mentioned some of the digital health opportunities, uh, you know, specifically that I think could help improve access. But I also want to mention, you know, a couple of let's call them moonshot ideas that I uh, am very excited about and hope to see, you know, in the not too distant future that are directly tied to the adoption of computational methods very early on in the drug discovery and development process. And those would be um, the first one is. I think it's outdated and a little bit unethical that we continue to have placebo-controlled trials in all instances. And it seems to me that there is enough data in the world of, you know, people who had conditions and, you know, you could track their progress over time that you should be able to create synthetic placebo arms um, sooner rather than later. And I would love one of these, you know, the big initiative I talked about, we're pulling together. That's one of the ideas that we could potentially try to push forward through regulatory agencies is adoption of something like that. Because imagine how wonderful everyone enters a clinical trial because they're hoping to test out the new drug. And the fact of the matter is that a chunk of those people will get nothing. They get the placebo and that is to test the efficacy of the drug. And you also have to weed out what's called the placebo effect, which is the fact that some people report feeling better and it is a psychological feeling because they are getting a drug, what they believe to be a drug. And, you know, it would be interesting to see you would take that out of the equation as well. The, uh, the Because if you could truly have patients' data that had the disease and progressed over a certain period of time and didn't take a drug, um, that strikes me as a little bit more accurate because we're probably undercounting efficacy um, when we deduct out the psychological feeling from trials. So that's part one. Part- that's very exciting, by the way, though, too. I think that will also make the financeability of those types of clinical studies more feasible and open up, again, going after disease areas that perhaps were underserved just because of the economic challenges that go with carrying out a placebo-controlled study, which right now is required uh, in most cases by the FDA, so it's standard practice. But I love what you're talking about there in terms of what it would open up and portend for future patients but also love the context of utilizing this nexus now in the adjacency of data, data analytics, predictive analytics, to be able to be much more efficient with the the clinical trial process. So it's one thing to discover a drug, but to allow that drug to get all the way through the process um, right now is oftentimes an insurmountable pathway. And if there's new technologies in silico technologies where uh, you could simulate that, which is what I understand you to be describing, that would be really transformational. Yeah. Um, and part two is uh, is similar. And it just, uh, you know, before you can go into human testing, you have to do a certain amount of animal testing. And that is another area that strikes me as outdated. I feel like as a society, we should be moving past that. Um, I mean, people are really moving forward with alternative meat products and things like that. And there is something where I think the the predictive analytics 
physics getting involved. Um, I talked to a, someone recently whose uh, a lab is working on organoids on a chip um, with the idea that you don't actually need to take mice or whatever models you're using, but you could, through other means, use that to predict what will happen when you go into a human. And that's the entire purpose of the animal testing. It's safety. It's let's make sure that this isn't going to cause serious damage before we try it in humans. Um, but I'd love to see the progression in data and computational ability get us to a point where that is minimized or even eliminated entirely in certain instances. I love your vision around those advanced thoughts and believe very deeply that we'll be moving in that direction. But without your leadership and you know the, the concepts that you're advancing and the resources that you have to do it, it will move much more slowly. So that, that's exciting to see. I'm going to end on the last question, which is we are focused now on the next 10 years and kind of where science is going, um, gene therapy, cell therapy, and all that goes with bringing these new advanced medicines to patients. They may have particular relevance in some of these rare diseases as well. Can you talk briefly about what you think is going to happen in the next 10 years as it relates to those uh, exciting new areas of, of research that are transforming the way medicine is being practiced, but more from the business and biomanufacturing side of it? How do you think things will play out as that part of the industry gets built out? Yeah. So I think on the, I want to underscore for the audience, first of all, the the vast untapped potential in this industry. The last statistic I heard, which was a couple of years ago, so it could have changed slightly, is that only 4% of proteins are druggable currently. 96% of what we know circulates in the body doesn't, it is not easy to attach a drug to using traditional methods. And so we are real, I mean, I don't have any doubt that one or two centuries from now, people will look back on the techniques we're using as archaic because that's how much potential is still out there to move forward. So it's, it's, a, it's going to be an exciting area to be for quite some time. On the manufacturing side, I think there has been a realization now that distributed manufacturing is necessary because if we look at the vaccine statistics for COVID, who is getting vaccinated and who is not, and what the timeline looks like, there is an almost perfect overlap between not having manufacturing capabilities and waiting to get vaccines to the population to you know, a couple more years uh, at best. And so there are companies like Sunflower working now on scaling down um, how you manufacture these advanced uh, therapeutics. There's attention being paid now to uh, API, meaning the active pharmaceutical ingredient manufacturing. And should we, you know, rekindle that even within the United States as we have trade disruptions, which have been caused by the pandemic? And I'm sure every listener has experienced a shortage of something because the supply chains, um, you know, I guess what we've learned is we can't just take for granted that there is a global supply chain that will move smoothly in all instances. And so drug manufacturing, I think, is a very important piece of that. And that's, you know, an area as well of our focus to help get that built so that next time, you know, even with 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 advanced therapeutics, we want to help roll that out. But certainly next time there is a disruption to the global supply chain, we don't want such a huge chunk of the world to be wanting for um, the products they need. Well, Lindsay, it's been a pure pleasure and privilege having the chance to hear your story, the impact that you're making. And I'm so excited to see what happens next with all the efforts that you're pouring into Rivet Social Ventures. And um, we wish you the very best of luck and thanks for your time today. Thanks so much, John.
Thanks for joining us today. It was another great episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with our guest today and were inspired the way I was. Looking forward to reconvening again in two weeks. Please visit our website at labratstounicorns.com. We welcome any of your comments, feedback, ideas. If you want me to ask certain questions of guests or you have ideas of people that we should be interviewing. That is all goodbye.